As was mentioned, we will be in the book of Mark, chapter 11. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark, chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 15, and we're going to go all the way through until the end of the chapter. Again, that's Mark, chapter 11, starting at verse 15, going all the way through to the end of the chapter. That's verse 33. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The he here is Jesus for context. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And, whether you, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is also in heaven, may forgive your trespasses." And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? What shall we say from man? They were afraid, for the people all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. One of the most famous magicians in the world is a man named Penn Gillette. Penn Gillette is uh, of the duo you may have heard of, Penn and Teller. And Penn, specifically, over the years, has become famous not just for his uh, magician and his wizardry, but also for his beliefs. Penn is an outspoken atheist. And if you listen to interviews with Penn, he's pretty outspoken. I think he's even written some books about his atheism. He talks about how he grew up in the church, and he read the Bible from cover to cover, and really wanted to understand this faith that he was being taught as a child. And what steered Penn away from the faith was as he read the Bible, one of the things in particular that troubled him is when he would read the Old Testament and he would read passages about how God would do things that seemed mean or harsh, cruel. He would read about the plagues. He would read about the uh, Lot's wife being turned to salt or Uzzah being struck down for touching the ark of God when it stumbled or when the donkey stumbled. So he would read these things in the Old Testament in particular and it would really trouble him and, and make him wonder, is this really a loving God? that does these things that seem insecure or cruel or harsh or sometimes just vindictive. And Penn's struggle with sort of understanding the gods of the Old Testament 
is one that I hear a lot of friends and, and people in my life who I would know to be skeptics as well. They hear these descriptions of God, particularly in the Old Testament, and they're really troubled by the way God seems to deal with people. And typically the response that I think jumps to a lot of our head if we're Christians and if we've read the Bible is when we hear people say, you know, God seems mean and harsh in the Old Testament. And then we say, yeah, yeah you know, there's some nuance to those passages. But at the same time, we have Jesus, right? And Jesus is the manifestation of God's invisible qualities. And then we can go on and talk about how, you know, Jesus showed the picture of him like carrying a lamb over his shoulders or uh, one of his more compassionate interactions, like the way he interacts with the woman caught in adultery and, you know, says that famous line everyone likes, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Or we talk about Jesus and the woman at the well, right? The things that make Jesus nice and fluffy and cuddly. Uh, and, And those are all true. And those are helpful. And those aren't necessarily bad ways to talk about uh, the fullness of who God is. But at the same time, even as we talk about Jesus being the manifestation of God's invisible qualities, being God on earth, we also have to wrestle with the way Jesus acts in this passage. Uh, Jesus goes into the temple and throws tables over, the passage we've all probably known and, and heard about. Jesus also uses a fig tree that he cursed to tell a parable, to tell a lesson to his disciples. And Jesus also, at the end of this chapter, has an interaction with the scribes and and the people in the temple that you could say is rude, snippy maybe. He kind of is, is very short with them. So as much as we want to like Jesus for his miracles and his healings and all the things that we've been seeing in the book of Mark so far, we also have to wrestle with what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's being a judge. And the same impulse that maybe makes us uh, step back or makes our our hair on the back of our neck stand up when we see Jesus doing these activities that are judging, it's probably that same impulse that Penn Jillette has when he reads about God in the Old Testament. And it's like, how can God, you know, uh, kill all these people who don't have blood smeared over their door? Or how can God turn this woman to salt? Or how can God send all these plagues to these innocent people? All of that is a difficult thing that we have to wrestle with. And we have to wrestle with it even here as we see Jesus acting as a judge. And we really see that the scribes in, the, in, the, in this passage have that exact wrestle. Who gave you this authority? Who, do you, who are you to say to be able to do all these things? And if Jesus, for us, if Jesus does have this authority, the question we should be asking further is what does that mean for us? As much as we make like Jesus as the teacher, as the miracle worker, as the healer, I think we also have to accept him for how he presents himself in this passage, which is a judge. He's telling what it is and what it isn't, and he's doing it in a way that can sometimes rub people the wrong way. And Jesus is not just a judge, but he's a judge with authority, if we are to take him at his word in the end of this passage. And so Jesus judges the house of God with authority, he judges the fruit of his people with authority, and he judges all of us with authority. And so today, what I want us to explore is to think about what it means for us to accept Jesus as a judge with authority in addition to all the other things we like about him, his healing, his miracles, his compassion, his mercy, his wisdom. But today, let's also think about what it means for Jesus to be a judge and a judge with authority and how that plays out in these passages. Now, it may be coincidental. Let me go back here. Maybe coincidental, but First Peter has a passage that I I just kind of like that always stuck with me. First Peter, judgment starts in the house of God. And maybe that's coincidental, but that's exactly where it starts in this passage. Jesus goes into the temple, and he's fulfilling, actually, by doing this, a prophecy. If you read the the account in John 
um, when he goes into the temple, it says the disciples realized that he was fulfilling a prophecy in Psalm 69, talking about zeal consuming him for his father's house. But he goes into the temple, and he begins to uh, overturn tables, and he's overturning tables of those who were known as money changers. Now, Jesus is not against people making uh, an honest living or having a business. We used to have a book table in the back. If Jesus came to our church today, I don't think he would flip it over and demand that people uh, stop doing what they're doing. But what Jesus is against is people using his, plot, his house, his temple, this place where people came to worship. He's against people using that as a place for profit. So the background here is that it wasn't uncommon for the Jews to pay what's known as a temple tax. This is something you'd pay for the upkeep of the temple. But what's happening with these money changers is you have Gentiles coming into the temple and they're having to exchange their currency in order to get the Jewish money in order to pay the fees for the upkeep of the temple. Now, what's challenging about that and where they're going wrong is those of you that have been overseas know how this works when you have to exchange your currency. Sometimes if you go somewhere, your dollar goes real far, and sometimes if you go somewhere, depending on the exchange rate, your dollar doesn't go very far. What was happening is the Jews were price gouging. They were giving a really exorbitant exchange rate and saying, no, 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 Gentiles, your money's no good here, but you can exchange it for our money, and by the way, we're going to charge you a really high exchange rate, and we're going to make a profit off you coming to worship God. There's a similar idea here with the pigeon or the dove, as it's described in the passage. Those who were selling doves were giving people doves to make sacrifices to God. This was a common practice in the temple as people would go into the temple and make a sacrifice in order to honor God. And the doves were being sold at a higher price. You could find a dove or a pigeon anywhere, but they were being sold in the temple at a higher price as doves that were especially acceptable before God. And again, we probably know how this works. A modern day example, you know, you're going to the movies and you go to the gas station, the Raisinets are 99 cents. You get to the movies and you're going about to go and like, oh, I want some Raisinets, 5.99. So they're upcharging. They're taking advantage of saying, oh no, these are the good Raisinets when really they're the same ones that you get at the gas station, right? So in addition to this price gouging that's going on, there's also carrying being described. So the temple, this temple that the Gentiles and the Jews were in, this was supposed to be a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of rest. But the fact that people are carrying things back and forth, it was basically a shortcut for them to get to places where they wanted to go. So they're treating it as an afterthought. Imagine if we're having service right now and we're singing and someone just kind of cuts through and is, you know, carrying something or someone's in their back there hammering or sawing at something. It's irreverent, right? It's showing that you don't really value or care about what's going on with the people and what they're doing. And all of these things, the carrying of things back and forth, the price gouging, all of it's compounded by the location of where it's happening. And I've said this a couple times now. In this passage, it talks about how Jesus entered the temple and immediately it describes his activity. What that keys us into is that when Jesus entered the temple, he's going into what's known as the court of the Gentiles. This is one of the outer courts. And as you go further and further in the temple where people would worship, there was different courts where people could go. And ultimately, you get to one where only the holiest of holies and the priests could go. But within this court of the Gentiles where they could worship, the Gentiles were allowed to worship God, like I said, make their sacrifices and pray and worship. So when Jesus drives out the money changers, he's driving out those who are exploiting Gentiles who are exploiting the other ethnic group who have their designated place for worship. And I think what this demonstrates is our tendency to look out for our own people, our own group, our own family, our own people that we consider our ethnic tribe or our uh, brothers and sisters. But unfortunately, 
That's the opposite of what Jesus teaches when he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount and says it's no good if you only love those who love you or if you only greet those who greet you back. The love that Jesus teaches is that we love everybody, but particularly we love those who are different than us. We love those who are the other. And in this case, the Jews, the other for them was the Gentiles, but they're doing the common mistake that a lot of us make, which is they're just looking out for their own and not looking out for the interests of others, as Philippians talks about. So when Jesus brings judgment to this temple situation, he does two things, and I think these two things are important. He calls the people of God in the temple away from their sin, and he calls them to what is written. So what I mean by that is he calls them away from their sin. He he says in in very particular pointed language, you've made my house a den of robbers. But then he calls them to what is written. My house should be a house of prayer for all nations. If you read in your discussion guide, that's quoted multiple times a fulfillment or that's quoted multiple times as an Old Testament passage. So he calls them from their sin into what is written. Now, when Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, he's using the Greek word there for nations is ethnos. That's where we get our word ethnicity. So what Jesus is saying is, my house should be a house of prayer for all different types of people. Every ethnicity, every different type of people group should be able to worship here. But again, the common mistake is people tend to look out for themselves, look out for their own, and we don't look out for others. And thus, Jesus had to bring judgment. Now, Israel is not the only people group to ever commit this sin. In 2010, BBC ran an article about the caste system in India. Caste system is how people are stratified within the culture in India. It's actually rooted in Hinduism, and there's about five or six different castes that people may fall into based off their birth or their people group or their ethnicity. And so your caste could be higher or lower depending on what you're born into. And your caste determines a lot of things about your life, the types of jobs you can do, the types of people you can be around. And one of the lowest groups on the caste system in India is a people known as the Dalit people, D-A-L-I-T. They're on the lowest part of the caste. They're in what's known as the untouchable group. And untouchables means that they're literally like people that are seen as so low in society that they shouldn't be touched. So they do things like take out trash, clean up dead animals, and it's all according to them being born into this untouchable group. In 2010, BBC talked about how even within the Christian church within India, Dalits were still seen as untouchable. Dalits, after they passed away, would be buried in separate graveyards from other people who were higher in the caste system, all these people still Christians. So in India, even if you passed away as a Dalit person, you were still seen as untouchable, even though you were in Christ. And even though Christ desires for his house to be a house of prayer for every people, every nation, every ethnic group, the Dalits in India were not included in that. Thus, the church in India sinned by treating them as second-class citizens, continuing the oppression and the treating of others, uh, not as we would treat our own or ourselves, or the not loving of others as we would love ourselves. I'll give another example that might hit a little closer to home. Uh, In 1787, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, two black men, left St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philly because they were given a second-class experience, just like the Gentiles were in this passage, just like the Dalits were in India. The church allowed them to worship, but they had to go to a separate space in the back where only black congregants could worship. 
So Richard Allen and Absalom Jones left uh, the church and they founded what would become to known as the AME Church or the African Methodist Episcopal Church. This is the largest historically black denomination. It's not black exclusively, but it was founded on the principle that they wanted to have churches where black people wouldn't have to sit in the back and they could worship and participate fully in the experience. A little bit further, in 2018, the Southern Baptist Convention, that's the largest Protestant denomination today, Al Mola wrote a report on the founding of one of their seminaries called Southern Seminary. The report is called The Report of Slavery and Racism in the History of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Al Mohler said this in his report, the founding faculty of this school, all four of them were deeply involved in slavery and deeply complicit in the defense of slavery. Many of their successors on this faculty throughout the period of reconstruction and well into the 20th century advocated segregation and the inferiority of African-Americans, and they openly embraced the ideology of the lost cause of Southern slavery. You know, there there are a lot of people who question and and wonder why uh, historic black church figures like Martin Luther King maybe don't always have what would be considered the most orthodox theology. And while we wrestle with that, we should also wrestle with many of the seminaries that taught sound theology treated black people as inferior or didn't fully welcome them in to the seminary. Now, I know I'm talking about things that are closer to home and and this conversation could be a bit uncomfortable. The point here is not to condemn anyone or to call anyone out in particular, but to simply point out that sin is a historical and global phenomenon of which the American church is not exempt. The church in America, just like the church in India, just like the house of God in this passage has struggled with partiality. Or to put it in more blunt terms, the church in America has struggled and will continue to struggle with racism. Now, some of you hear that and you say, amen, let's talk about that. We should confront that. That's a conversation that needs to happen. And others of you hear that and you're, you're a little bit hesitant. You may be a little bit skeptical. There are books out there that talk about the racial history of the church in America or the history of the church in India. Um, And and I don't know how productive it is for me to try to get through all of that in a sermon because I have a clock ticking against me. But what I do think is instructive for us today is to look at the way Jesus deals with the issue that's going on in the temple. Notice I said Jesus calls the money changers from their sin and into what is written. And similarly today, as we grapple with the idea of racism in the church, in our lives, in America, whatever you want to call it, we also must grapple with how are we turning from sin, but also to what is written. I'm sure everyone in this room, if you're a Christian for any amount of time, would would condemn what was happening in the temple, what happens in India, what happened in the past with the church in America. We would all say that that's sin. But in light of the way that Jesus judges the house of God, I have to not only ask, are we willing to call what's happening sin in the past, but are we also willing to turn to what is written about how we should conduct ourselves in the present? This seems to be the question that a lot of people are asking today. I mean, it seems like it's a bit of a broken record, but this summer and particularly this year has had seemingly a lot of racial tension in the news. And the question I hear a lot of people asking is, you know, I think all those things are bad for the most part, but what can I as an individual do? Uh, Just like Jesus I would encourage us to not just turn from what we see as sin, but to turn to what is written. And particularly, what I, what I mean when I say what is written, there are 59 what I would consider one another statements that are written in the New Testament, statements that use that phrase, one another. And these are depictions of how Christians in the present should be treating one another. 
So this is more of an illustration of how many there are. We could probably share this with you afterwards, but the list just goes on and on and on. Descriptions about how Christians should treat each other, be at peace with one another, honor one another, wash one another's feet, have concern for one another. And as the conversations about race in the church have unfolded this year, a lot of my friends, like I said, are asking, like, you know, you know what can I do? And particularly, a lot of my white friends have, have wrestled with the idea of, like, I didn't even know that this was a thing that was still going on. Like, I, th- I thought we were a lot further than what we are. And I think that's, that's a bit of a valid question because it would be dishonest of me for, for me to say that the church today is the same racially, that the racial climate in the church today is the same as it was in the 1700s or even in the 1960s. But as I say that, at the same time, I, I, I'm not sure how productive it is for us to compare the church against past generations because I don't think it accomplishes what Jesus is after in this passage. Remember, he calls the house of God out of their sin and into what is written. So I think a better way for Christians to have this dialogue about the racial climate that's going on right now, especially in the church, is to compare what's happening here against what is written in the Bible, not against what's happened in the past, necessarily, and not against what's happening in other nations. But our final standard of how well are we doing should be based off what's written about how people should treat each other in the Bible. So because Jesus is judging the house of God by that standard, that's the same standard which we should hold one another in Christ accountable to. Jesus says, real simply, by this the world will know your disciples if you what? Love one another. And the loving one another is not a, it's not a vague like, oh, I love you, like, uh, I love you, right? We could all probably say that. But the Bible is very specific and particular in what it looks like to love one another. There's all these, like I said, one in their own statements. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. I'll just go through a few of them. But like I said, there are 59 of them that we could look at and go through tonight. This is Galatians 5.13. Serve one another through love. You know, a, a lot of the conversations that seem to have started this year have started as a debate, I have my side of the issue, and you have your side of the issue, and we're going to talk about facts and throw articles back and forth and see if we can try to land at some type of uh, middle ground, which never seems to happen. What we could do is start by serving one another through love. So we could start by maybe going to that person who seems to be concerned about the racial climate that's happening right now and say, hey, how can I help? How can I serve you? Is there anything I can do that would help make this a more productive or more welcoming place for you? Instead of making our posts on Facebook, building up our arguments in our head, wanting to debate the person, we could serve one another through love. Another thing we could do, bear one another's burdens. Uh, Particularly, I think that one of the the real practical ways Christians can do this is by praying for each other. And Chris, I I totally agree, the Wednesday prayer gathering is is where that happens. And it, it doesn't have to be the only place where that happens, but bearing one another's burdens, being specific about how can we pray for each other. I just read this morning, or just heard this morning, three police officers were fired upon in Los Angeles. Someone just ambushed the car. Instead of uh, airing my opinion about abolishing, defunding, funding more, training further, there's a place for that. But the Bible says we should bear one another's burdens. So what we could also do as Christians is ask that person, who's a police officer, how can I pray for you? It seems like there's a lot going on right now that's impacting the way that you want to do your job. Is there anything I can be praying for? Another one. Bear with one another in love, with patience and gentleness. Uh, This one is is particularly important for those interpersonal relationships, that family member you have that seems to be on the different ideological side of things. You don't have to bring up the issues you disagree with them 
every time you see them. When you see them this Thanksgiving or for the holidays, it doesn't have to be the time where you're going to win them to your side of things. We can bear with one another in patience. And then the last one, don't slander one another. This is James 4. Uh, I think a real practical way to do this is to define terms when you're talking to people. Because oftentimes what happens is someone says something and we think, and we, our mind, we know what they're saying, but they mean something else. So all, it mean, all, all we can do is uh, to avoid slandering each other is ask someone, what did you mean when you said that? Unpack that for me. What did you mean when you said systemic racism? What did you mean when you said evangelical? There's a whole book written about that. Who is an evangelical? That's a big topic. And if we go off assumptions, oftentimes we end up slandering each other. A pastor in our movement just preached a whole sermon. Here's what I mean when I say black lives matter. We could do that same thing to each other. What do you mean when you say that? What do you mean by that? I want to make sure I'm not slandering you. I want to make sure I'm not attributing things to you that you don't believe. So all these one another's are ways that we, like I said, there's 59 of them. That was four, right? We could go on. But remember how Jesus judges the house of God in this passage. He holds them according to the standard of what is written. And he doesn't say, well, it's not as bad as it was in the past. So you guys are doing okay. Just keep trying, right? He doesn't say, well, it's worth in other places. So, you know, just keep, keep your head to the plow. He judges them according to the standard of what is written. And we should hold ourselves in the church accountable to that same standard. And Jesus calling this house of, his, the house of God back to that standard of what is written is not a neutral stance. The truth can be divisive. And here in this passage, we see a division. The uh, scribes and the people overseeing the temple are plotting now to destroy Jesus. It only makes them dig their heels in further for their dislike of him. And what's interesting, I like how it describes why they do that. Fear. They were afraid. I think it's oftentimes fear, not necessarily open hatred, but fear that keeps us from obeying what is written. And it's fear and a, a fear to move from our status quo that may prevent us from being a house, of play, a house of prayer for all nations. It's fear that prevents us oftentimes from confronting our prejudices, having that conversation, having that deep inner uh, soul searching about traditions or things that maybe prevent people from coming in or knowing who Christ truly is. And if it's not fear, the other emotion that's displayed in this passage is anger, is another thing that may prevent us from being a house of prayer for all nations. Notice uh, Jesus' demonstration of anger is a positive one, where he channels his anger in a direction that gets people towards righteousness. He's angry. I, I don't know another way to describe what he's being as angry, zealous, as, as the prophecy says, but he channels that towards getting people to live in line with what is written. And if we don't channel our anger, that zealousness that we may feel for justice, if we don't channel that towards righteousness, all we're going to do is multiply oppression. This is why we see movements over and over again. You can study the history of it. They start by wanting to speak up for a people group who's oppressed, and then by the time they get enough support and the time they get enough power, they end up oppressing people themselves. It's a cycle that repeats itself. And in fact, you see it repeat itself even in this uh, chapter in Mark. In Mark 10, there we go. Jesus talks about how the Gentiles lord authority over one another. And then he says, it shall not be so among you, but the greatest among you, if you want to be great, shall be your servant. So he talks about, look, the Gentiles do this. They lord authority over each other, but it shall not be so among you. And then what happens when we get to the among you? We get to the, the, the temple where the Jews have their own little system and their own little power. And what are they doing? They're oppressing the Gentiles. 
So it's a cycle that repeats itself unless we channel our zeal, unless we channel our anger towards what is written. And as followers of Jesus who want to see justice, who maybe want to see oppression corrected, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be zealous, as the Bible might say. But in your anger, what? Do not sin. Now, notice I'm I'm talking about a a righteous anger that, that Jesus is displaying here. And that righteous anger is causing people, because of his teaching and because of the way that he's causing a scene here, people are astonished. It says that people were amazed at the teaching he was giving. And we can probably assume that there were Gentiles among those who were named in the crowd who were amazed at this teaching. This Messiah is saying that I have a place at his table. I have a place in his kingdom. And he's willing to literally overturn tables in order to demonstrate that. I will warn all of us right now that if we live our lives in accordance with what is written, if we live out those 59 one another's, you will be turning someone's table figuratively. You'll be stepping on their toes. You'll be that person who's hanging out with those people, who's around those people, whoever those people are for you, black people, white people, liberals, progressives, woke people, not woke people. You'll be around those people, and that will disrupt. That will turn tables for somebody, and that's okay because it may even be a sign of fruitfulness. It may be a sign that we're actually living and being the people who God has called us to be. And that's actually what he judges Israel in light of. They weren't bearing fruit the way that he called them to bear fruit. This is where we get Jesus now getting into the description of the fig tree that was withered. Just as Jesus judged the house of God earlier in the chapter, in the beginning of the chapter, excuse me, or the beginning of the passage we read tonight, Jesus also judged that fig tree, which is a, a metaphor for his people, right? This tree represents a nation, a nation of Israel, which God covenanted with to bear fruit among the nations. And him cleansing the temple is one example of him saying how you've fallen short of the standard that I've given you. Notice that the tree is, is withered down to its root. And Jesus is saying, we're, we're, we're springing up or we're going to bring about a new covenant, a new growth in which people abide in me but not the way they used to abide in me. In the old covenant, they, they abided in Christ in a sense by following those old covenant laws and having the temple where they could organize things and do their worship. But in this new covenant, people abide with and know Christ by faith. Now, talking about this new covenant, he then goes on to talk about how uh, in the second part of... Let me go back here. In the second part, he talks about how... Uh, displaying this faith of the new covenant is a means by which we're encouraged to pray. And I want to kind of go through this part starting at, um, it's at verse, starting at about verse 23, where he talks about whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, right? The the essential question of, of, of that little interaction starting at verse 23, if you have enough faith believe that you have received and it'll happen. The essential question I think we all probably leave with when we read starting at verse 23 is, do I get what I want if I have enough faith, if I just believe hard enough? And I would say not quite, probably not quite the way that we're thinking of it. Um, we got to unpack some things to talk about the context of this for it to make sense. So notice first that the, the believing and receiving part, Jesus is speaking to a specific group of people. He's speaking to his disciples. He's not shouting this from the mountaintops or saying this to the multitudes. Now that context is crucial because then it prepares the way for the explanation. And the explanation is that what Jesus is saying here is that for his disciples, people that are in him, 
they will have what they need, but they'll have that according to his plan or in his name. There's another passage in John 15 where he talks about asking anything in my name. And his plan or living in his name or living in his will means that we're living and it presupposes that we want to be conformed to his image and be with him and enjoy him forever. So in that sense, we have everything we ask for or it will be granted to us in his time. And that's why some of your translations say, believe that you are receiving it and not believe that you have received it. So uh, Revelation kind of uses this language about God wiping every tear from our eye. There's an already not yet to having everything we want in Christ. Everything we suffer will be met according to his time. That's why you read in Philippians when Paul's in jail, he's able to say, my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ, right? So it's not God will supply all your needs the way that you want them in the minute that you want them, but he'll supply all your needs in Christ. And he's saying that from prison. So he understands that there's this already not yet method of which God supplies or meets our needs. I think a more poignant example of that is actually in the Old Covenant. If you look in the book of Daniel, the three Hebrew boys, a lot of us know this story. It's the old Bible story, right? King Nebuchadnezzar is about to throw them into the fiery furnace. And he says, they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, like, look, throw us in. God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're going to stand in faith and we're going to believe him. And they're thrown into the furnace and we all can probably see the felt figures on the board, right? They're in the furnace with the flames coming up. And what do people see? They, well, what do people see or what do people describe is also there with the three boys? One like a son of man, a fourth person. Nebuchadnezzar's like, I thought we threw three people in there. Now there's four. And of course, we can kind of read this through Nebuchadnezzar's uh, tainted polytheistic view of things. He says, one like a son of the gods. We would understand that person who's one like a son of the gods to be Jesus. That's what it means to be standing in faith. They have this idea that, look, God's going to supply our needs. We don't know exactly how it's going to work out, if he delivers us, if he doesn't deliver us, but he's going to be there with us. And he was right there, literally there with them. There's four figures in there, one like a son of man. So the, the idea here is that we, Jesus is encouraging us, and I don't want to temper our expectations, to pray specific, bold prayers of faith in which we ask God for very specific things. We're actually doing that every week in our Wednesday prayer, asking for, uh, I always get this wrong, five salvations, five new members, 10 salvations. We're asking very specifically for things. We're standing in faith, believing God to do the miracle of turning people's hearts back to him. But even as we pray those bold prayers, those specific prayers, we have to do it in a way, realizing that God will meet them according to his will and in his time. So our job is to live lives of faith, to pray prayers of faith, to take action, to take risk, and to do so knowing that God will supply all our needs according to Christ. And I think we see that even in the, the lives of the disciples. As you, if you read the book of Acts, they go on to do some really miraculous things. But then, at some point, they all die. And how do most of them die? They get martyred, right? The, the historical accounts differ on John specifically on some of them, but they, they, they all die eventually. None of them are here still walking around because they had enough faith. They all die. And for one earthly moment, it seemed like that they had lost. But now their souls are the same place, or figuratively the same place that we saw in Daniel. They're with the Son of Man. They're with Jesus. So God's applying all their needs. For one moment, it looked like, oh, they lost. Peter got crucified upside down. 
but now his soul is with Jesus. So everything he prayed for, everything he asked for in faith, Christ ultimately is meeting and will meet. And we'll get to experience that when we're with him. It's going to be glorious. Okay, we're called to pray prayers, bold prayers, standing in faith. But then I like how Jesus kind of grounds the expectation with this uh, also kind of exhortation to say, and when do you stand praying? Forgive. I think we all like the idea of like, you know, God's encouraging me to pray boldly and to ask for things and to make this kind of figurative idea that if I ask for something big, like a mountain to be thrown into the sea, that it'll happen in faith. And then he says, oh yeah, by the way, forgive people. Which sometimes for us, some of us can probably be more difficult than throwing a mountain into the sea. And the idea here is that uh, Jesus is, in a sense, judging what it means for us to pray and stand with him in faith. Because he says, if you're not able to forgive your heavenly father is not forgiving you. He says that in a positive sense, pray and forgive so that your heavenly father can forgive you. The idea here is that a forgiven heart is able to forgive. Jesus tells this most clearly in the parable of the unmerciful servant. I won't read it, but I'll summarize it for you. Matthew uh, 18, 23 through 35. There's a man who's forgiven a large debt. Imagine you were forgiven a million dollars. Someone just said, ah, it's okay. You don't have to pay me back. I forgive you. I pardon you. I know crazy. Imagine you're forgiven a million dollars, and then you see someone in the street, and they owe you five dollars, and you pay me back my money. Grab them, rough them up, give me my five dollars. That shows that you haven't embraced the forgiveness that you've received. You haven't embraced the fact that you've been forgiven a sum of a million dollars because you still can't let go of the five. And yet, That's how many of us act when we don't pray to forgive, when we don't pray forgiving those who have wronged us. A real practical way to to keep this at the forefront of your mind is when you pray, don't just ask God for things. We talked about that. That's good. Ask God. Be specific. Pray bold prayers. Confess your sins. Remember that you're being forgiven always of a debt that you owe, be it for being angry, being impatient with someone, shaking your fist at someone because they cut you off in traffic. All those sins are things that God could hold against you, but he doesn't. So then, when, not if, when people sin against us, we can remember how much we've been forgiven. We can constantly have that rhythm of not just asking, but confessing our sin so that we can forgive others when they wrong us. Not if, but when they wrong us. And we can remember that the one who judges us, the one who ultimately has that ability to forgive us, he also has the authority the authority to say we are, are or we are not forgiven based off our stance and our posture towards forgiving others. And he demonstrates that authority at the end of this passage. This is where the, the scribes and the people in the temple get offended. And they ask him, why? Who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you authority to turn these tables over? Who gave you the authority to say that we're like this withered fig tree? Who gave you the, the authority to say that we have to forgive people? And if we don't, our heavenly father hasn't forgiven us. Jesus says, I have that authority. And he answers their question in a very interesting way, right? And you'll, you'll see this if you read the Gospels a lot. He answers their question with a question, and in doing that, he still answers their question. So they ask him, you know, or Jesus asks them, all right, I'll ask you a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? And the, the pickle they're in here is that if they say from heaven, well, John testified that Jesus was the Messiah, But if they say from human origin, essentially they're saying, well, 
John was not a real prophet. And everybody liked John, and everybody agreed that he was a prophet. So there's no good answer. So they say, well, we don't know. And because he has authority, because he doesn't have to give an answer to people, he says, all right, well, I won't tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Because you know, but you just don't want to admit it. You know, I mentioned up front that uh, Jesus was a judge and that oftentimes we want to use Jesus to try to explain away the parts of God that we don't like, particularly maybe when we read the Old Testament and it seems like God is unstable and angry and cruel. But what we have to wrestle with is in this passage, Jesus rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And he does that because he's a judge and he is a judge with authority. Now, I'm using the word judge over and over again, and I want to give us a picture of the type of judge that Jesus is. Because when I say the word judge, I'm sure a lot of us probably think of someone with a gavel and a court system, and that's, you know, the the most relevant example that we could probably all pull from. So with that in mind, I want to talk to you about this judge. This is Craig Mitchell. I have his name right? Yeah, Craig Mitchell. Craig Mitchell is judge of the Superior Court of Los Angeles. And Craig Mitchell founded a group of, uh, an organization called the Skid Row Running Club. Some of you know what Skid Row is. Skid Row is a place in Los Angeles. It's a big tent community, and it's all uh, people that are homeless or or experiencing homelessness. So people who may be struggling with drugs or alcoholism, mental illness, they all just live on the streets. And so when Judge Mitchell would sentence people in Skid Row for doing petty crimes and he'd have to send them to jail, he wanted to find a way to try to build relationships with them beyond just telling them to go to jail. So he started this running club because he's, he's a runner and he, he did it as a means to connect with people. So once a week, he would go to Skid Row and he would gather up as many people as he can, often people that he had sent to jail, and they would go for a run together. And he would use that time to build relationships with them to offer them mentoring, to point them towards resources that would get them out of the cycle of being in and out of jail. There was one interaction in particular with Judge Mitchell that really stuck out to me and that, that, that was just pertinent, and I, I, I think of it a lot. Uh, Judge Mitchell pardoned or, or allowed a, a gentleman who was serving a long prison sentence to finish early, I believe is what it was. So this guy's getting out of prison, and Judge Mitchell is the one that allows it, And as a token of his thanks, the person who uh, Judge Mitchell pardoned wrote him a letter just to say, hey, I really appreciate you letting me out. You didn't have to. I I just want to thank you. And the guy who wrote Judge Mitchell this letter was surprised when Judge Mitchell got the letter, he wrote him back. And not only did he write him back, he said, hey, I'd like to meet you sometime. Let's meet up. And so to try to paint the picture of what this meeting's like, I have to try to describe for you what the the gentleman who got out of prison was like. Um, I think he had done about 20 or 30 years, so a pretty good amount of time in prison. Uh, He had tattoos all over his face. And when he walked around, you could kind of see that he carried this shame with him as someone who had been in prison for a while. And so he's, I'm imagining what his meeting with Judge Mitchell was like because they describe it. You don't see it, but they describe it. He, he says he, when he met Judge Mitchell, he probably, you know, he walks in the room, his shoulders are real low, he's walking like a puppy with his tail between his legs, and he, he says to Judge Mitchell, and he said this, he said, you know, Judge Mitchell, if I could, I'd really like to shake your hand. And Judge Mitchell looks at him, and you can see what Judge Mitchell looks like, clean, slick back hair, perfectly fresh shirt, and he looks at him, and he says, a handshake won't do. And he opens up his arms, He gives him a big hug. 
It's an emotional scene. And as I think about it, I just, I'm like, wow, that's, that's a really powerful sign. A judge who didn't have to, but he pardoned this man and allowed him to get out. And the man says, just a handshake. And he says, no, 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 no. I want to embrace you. And he pulls him in and he gives him a hug. And you can imagine how the story goes. I'm pretty sure this guy joined the running club and got his life together and he runs with Judge Mitchell once a week. The point in saying that is that what Jesus offers us is more than just a hug. It's more than just an invitation to join a running club. Jesus has authority. He's a judge and he can and he will judge us. But for us, those of us who know about this judge, who know about this authority, we know that we have a debt against him that's more than a 30-year prison sentence. It's more than any prison sentence. It's an eternal sentence that we've merited by our sin, our sin against a holy and perfect God. And when he pardons us, like I said, he offers us more than a hug. He offers us more than an invitation to go run with him every week. He pardons us with his blood. And he offers us an invitation, not just to run with him once a week, but to know him deeply and intimately. Tonight, if you're in the room or if you're watching online, you can know Jesus that way. You can know the judge who has authority that way. You can know him deeply. You can know him intimately through faith. And the way that we constantly build that relationship is through what's called repentance. Acknowledging that our sins are against a holy God, a judge with authority, but he has pardoned us with his blood. And that's what we'll do as we take communion is we're gonna remember that pardon that we've been given in Christ. That although our sins have mounted up for us, offense after offense after offense, he's pardoned us. One of my uh, favorite books, and it's one of my favorite books because it's a short book, is called The uh, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller. Real short book. And in the book, he talks about how, as Christians, if we're in Christ, we have the verdict before any of our performance. So as we leave this week, let's think about and hold that at the forefront of our minds, that the judge has already pardoned us if we're in Christ. He's already accepted us. And now we live in light of that pardon and in light of that acceptance. So everything we do this week, we do it from acceptance and not for acceptance. We do it from the love we've received in Christ and not for the love that we want to receive in Christ. Our judge has pardoned us and he's pardoned us by his blood. Let's pray and then let's sing a song and take communion. Lord, we want to be reminded of your holiness right now in this moment. We want to be reminded of the forgiveness that we can extend to others because you have extended a unmeasurable amount of forgiveness towards us. That every sin that we've committed against you is a sin against a holy and perfect judge, a judge with authority, a judge who will ultimately call what is and what isn't. And God, would you create in us a desire to know you and not just to know you, but to know you savingly, to be in Christ, and to be able to pray those prayers that are bold, that are filled with faith, but that are also filled with humility and forgiveness. Help us to remember who we are in you. Help us to not treat lightly the blood that was shed for us. Help us to remember the pardon that we've received. And help us to live lives in light of that pardon. And help us to live lives from the acceptance that we have in you.
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.